Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. If you love something, let it go. If you hate it, marry it. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you on another wonderful Tuesday here. Dead in the middle of July, the dog days of summer. And remember, you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are in order to listen to this fine show. There you go. All right, in pipe parts, uh, I'm going to continue me answering the uh, seven questions for seven experts, and this one will be about what makes a pipe more of a flake tobacco pipe for me. Uh, and then my guest is uh, all the way from England. His name is Ken Johnson. Uh, recently returned to the pipe, but for a couple of years back in the late 70s, worked for Carreras Rothmans and was in the tobacco industry in England. And I had a lot of fun talking to Ken, so you get to hear that. Uh, music, mailbag, and uh, instead of a rant, a special, uh, special, special message. There we go, special message at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that all the way till the end of the show. Uh, this Saturday, this Saturday coming up, Saturday the 18th, the JDRF fundraiser items will go out on uh, pipestud.com at, uh, I believe he posts stuff at, uh, at uh, 10 a.m. Central Time, so 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, uh, 4 p.m. in England. And he'll also be listing the auction items on his uh, Pipe Stud eBay store. Those will go up live on Saturday. And those will be seven-day auctions. So remember, uh, thanks to Steve and his all of his effort, 100% of the sale price of those items goes directly towards the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation to help uh, care for and find a cure for those dealing with uh, type 1 diabetes or, uh, you know, uh, uh, people like my daughter that are dealing with autoimmune diseases. So there you go. Make sure and uh, bid on those auction items, bid heavy. And uh, when you see the tobacco items show up on his page, you know, just remember that every dime that you spend there is going to be donated to the JDRF. So keep an eye on that again that's coming up saturday the 18th of july on uh, pipestud.com and on his pipestud ebay store all right let's get the show rolling everybody sit back relax fire up a bowl thank you all for tuning in and here we go there's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine missouri meerschaum corncob pipe an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and I'm asking myself the Ask the Experts question. And I'm not much of an expert on this one, but it's what makes a pipe more of a flake tobacco pipe for you? I very rarely, uh, well, I mean, let's just say I prefer a ribbon cut tobacco, much prefer it. So even in my, uh, with my HH old dark fired, I get the, I have the ready rubbed version because, you know, I just don't want to have to, uh, sometimes I think flake tobacco is kind of like the Ikea furniture of tobaccos or the fajitas of tobaccos. You know, you go to a Mexican restaurant, you order fajitas and they just it's all the it's all the parts of the meal and then you got to assemble it yourself well you know what i would rather the tobacco blender just do the rib you know rub it out for me but i understand that people like flake tobaccos so i can't argue with it uh what makes a pipe more of a flake tobacco pipe for me depends really on the blend Again, I'm pretty much stuck with if it's a straight Virginia or a uh, or even the HH old dark fired in the non rubbed out version, uh, in the flake version. I'm in a smaller bowl. 
I'm in a group three size or smaller. But again, with all of my pipes, I need them to have a quarter inch of wood all the way around the uh, around the bowl. So the exterior, you know, the distance between the outside of the wall, the outside of the pipe, and the inside of the tobacco chamber, I need a quarter inch thickness of wood. So if it's a flake, I'm in a smaller pipe. If I'm smoking um, a scudo or uh, you know one of the uh, one of my Virginia Perique flakes or ribbons, uh, you know, flakes or uh, coin cuts or whatever. I, I've still got some old, uh, uh, some old McClellan St. James Woods. Because it's a Virginia Perique and because those are stouter blends, well, I'll take them and rub them out and put them in a larger pipe because it's got a bigger flavor to it. Uh, so to me, it more depends on the blend itself than what the then the uh yeah, then the style the blend comes in uh if you're doing the uh yeah the, the twist and fold method like Perry Jensen likes to do or if you're doing that method i don't mind so much yeah you know, i wouldn't do that in a bigger bowl all right because you need those flakes to stand up if you're working with, uh, you know, with any of those other flake tobaccos and you're doing that bend fold twist, yeah, a little smaller bowl will work fine. And I will enjoy a Virginia Perique flake that way. I'll enjoy a Virginia flake that way. But again, it's not my, not my preferred method. Um, I don't have, I, I wish I had a magic to this, but I would definitely say that you know, you don't want to cross germinate. So if you're if you're doing an English, if you're doing a Latakia based flake, you don't want to put that into a flake pipe that is for is for Virginias and vice versa because you're going to get the ghosting. So if you're doing flakes in different styles, you need to have different styles of pipes that work that way. Um, I will uh, I will attest to the fact that you know if you don't rub out the flake all the way and you do the twist and fold method or stack on end method like Sykes talked about, uh, you're going to get a much longer smoke. You're going to get a much. Uh, it's not going to be as forward or as strong that way, but you are going to get a longer smoke, and you've got to be a little more careful when you're tamping because you've got more dense tobaccos in there than what especially what i'm used to in my uh, flake pipes or in my in my ribbon cut stuff so you got to be a little careful there um i would suggest to somebody who is starting out that is looking at a flake pipe well i think yeah you want a uh, you want something in a tobacco chamber that is three quarters of an inch or smaller maybe down to 0.7 but not much smaller I would say you want a tobacco chamber that it is is least at least one and a quarter inches deep, but not much more than one and a half. So again, you're in that group three range in there, smaller pipe, and I think that's a good base level to go, especially if you're going to start doing the uh, the stacking on end or the twisting, and or you're going to do a little bit of rubbing out. Um, in the future, you're going to hear about a uh, experiment that I was involved with, or a ta a a taste testing that I was involved with of three different uh, vintages of Orlick Golden Sliced, and I, the, that was kind of my practice to remind me of different ways to smoke flakes because when you're doing a vertical tasting of different vintages, well, you want to pack it and smoke it in different ways to see how it works. So. Uh, again, so again, my answer, I smoke the, I smoke the flakes in whatever I would normally smoke the ribbon cut in, but I rub it all the way out. If I am doing the twist and fold, I'm looking for that smaller, narrower tobacco chamber and I'm going to pack it not quite as dense. So hope that helps, uh, more of these coming up as we go through it. But in just a moment, my conversation with Ken Johnson. <laughs> This is Internet Radio. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. 
They're a way to help you make your mark. And like you, there can only be one Savinelli. We're back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and joining us from England. Um, I'm assuming you haven't Brexited yet, but uh, soon to Brexit uh, is a, a pipe smoker and a, uh, a pipe smoker that has a history with a particular tobacco company that I'm, you know, just I, I'm fascinated about. But uh, Ken Johnson, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about this. And and the other thing that I notice is that you're from um, you're from Harrogate, which is uh, kind of where a lot of the uh, a lot of the British tea business is based. There is uh, a big tea company, Taylor's in Harrogate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not originally from Harrogate. I come from uh, a town called Wallasey, which is the other side of the River Mersey from Liverpool which a lot of Americans will know because of the Beatles, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've heard, and, and everything that I've heard from people is that Liverpool is the most friendly city in all of England. So. Yeah. The, the people, uh, the people are friendly, very uh, outgoing, more so than the Yorkshire people, which is where I live now. Harrogate people, Yorkshire people tend to be a little more reticent than, uh, than the Liverpudlians. <laughs> uh, but I, I put that down to the fact that the vast majority of people that live in the Liverpool area, somewhere in their um, ancestry, there will be a lot of Irish blood. And, of course, the Irish are great talkers. <laughs> so how to talk me through your uh, your your beginnings. When did you uh, when did you start smoking a pipe? When and how do we get you into the tobacco industry? Right. Uh, quickly then, just just as an aside, uh-huh. Liverpool was the home to two big uh, tobacco companies, yeah. um, Ogden's, which became part of Imperial Tobacco, and Cope's, which became part of um, Gallagher's. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't really uh, be live in that area and not be aware of these two companies. I mean, Ogden's had one of the biggest pipe tobacco brands in, in the UK in the 60s and 70s, uh, St. Bruno. Uh-huh. Uh, Cope, Cope brothers were more famous for rolling tobacco. They had a big, big rolling tobacco, hand-rolling tobacco brand called Old Hoban. But they were also the, the originators of um, Escudo, uh, Navy Rolls, Navy Deluxe. I'm showing had- Ken through the camera my packet of Old Holborn rolling tobacco. Well, that started with Cope Brothers of Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, and, and I sort of had an interest in it. I had a, my father smoked a pipe, two of my uncles smoked pipes. Um, I left Liverpool University, joined Procter & Gamble. I was there for five years. I was an area manager when the opportunity to join Carreras came up. And uh, as I say, I had a sort of vague interest in, in the tobacco business. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll have a go at that. So. In 1978, I, I joined Carreras um, as what's called in the UK a national account manager. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically means you deal with the big companies, the big, the big customers, the national customers. So, um, of course, Procter and Gamble were mainly uh, well dealt with grocery, supermarkets, wholesalers. Cigarettes are sold in a whole load more places than just grocery stores. Obviously, pubs. Okay. Um, what we call CTNs, tobacco, uh, confectioners, tobacconists, and news agents, um, and, and and everywhere from motorway services area, motorway service areas to little kiosks. Um, so there was a, a quite a widespread of national accounts. Uh, Rothmans owned Carreras, so they were called Carreras Rothmans by then. I think they'd acquired them in the in the sixties. And uh, Carreras, were, Carreras were mainly focused on cigarettes because that was mm-hmm. the big market. Yeah. I mean, tobacco, was, pipe tobacco was not a big market, and it was in decline. It had been ever since um, mass production of cigarettes in the sort of late 1800s, early 90s, early 1900s. Um, but they had a couple of uh, famous brands. Erin Moore was the big one. Yeah. Um, that was. Uh, 
you would you would expect to find Arimore everywhere that tobacco was sold, just like you'd expect to find Sabruno everywhere that tobacco was sold. Um, and then they had a, a load of, of smaller brands, um, Punchbowl, Parsons Pleasure, Barney's Ideal, Yachtsman, Murray's Mellow Mixture. They had got into tobacco um, in a big way uh, when they bought um, Murray's, the Belfast producers, in the 1950s. Although they had smoked, they had, um, forgive me, they had produced pipe tobacco earlier than that. And they had a, 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 relative, a relatively famous brand called Craven Mixture, yeah. which was specialized for the third Earl of Craven um, and was the, the brand that J.M. Barry called Arcadia Mixture in the, uh, in the uh, book. Was it Lady Nicotine? Yep, My Lady Nicotine, yeah. My Lady Nicotine, that was it. Um, and in, in fact, as I understand it, Barry allowed... Carreras to advertise Craven Mixture under his name uh, with his approval. And I, as, I think as a sort of thank you for that, um, when they built their first purpose-built factory, Carreras called it the Arcadia Works. That was the Arcadia Works on City Road in London. And that would and have been... Late... Uh, that's back when there was a tobacco factory manufacturing right in the middle of the city of London. Yeah. Well, even the second factory, when they expanded into the Mornington Crescent factory, uh, that that's, that was not, not central London as in Piccadilly, but still not far away from that, Mornington Crescent. Um, and that the building's still there. It's a beautiful Art Deco building, which is now, now offices. And if you're um, in London, you can go by there because they still have the two black cat statue statuaries at the entrance because I, I recently saw a picture of it about it uh, that was taken about a year ago and they had just cleaned up the statues well if if they are Brian they're not the original statues they must uh, maybe the the developers who turned it into offices have did that because I, I do know that there were two black cats um, because that was the there was a the face of a cat on the craven mixture if I remember um, and then they were they were famous for Craven A cigarettes as well, and that had a black cat on the packet. But I stand to be corrected here, but I I have a feeling, I'm sure I've read it somewhere, that one of the cats um, went to uh, the Jamaica tobacco factory that Carrera owned or Rothmans owned, and the other the other cat went to the Basildon factory, which was where most of Rothmans cigarettes were made. So that, I, I think those, if, the, if there are two cats there now, they're not the original cats. <laughs> they're imposters. They're imposters. <laughs> or maybe, you know, numbers three and four from the litter. So when you were, when, when you were working for Carreras Rothman, they had also purchased and they owned the Dunhill tobacco names at that point, correct? That's right. They, they bought Murray's in the 50s and then they bought Dunhill although by that time they themselves had been taken over by Rothmans, but Rothmans used Carreras as the vehicle to acquire Dunhill. Um, and the uh, the Dunhill brands were, well, the Dunhill company was owned by Carreras, by Rothmans International through Carreras. Um, but we had nothing to do with the Dunhill pipe tobaccos. Um, we, uh, really? they weren't on our price list. Um, they sold that the, they marketed the pipe tobaccos themselves. I think mainly uh, through the shops through mail order. So even um, even then, Dunhill would have been split up, where the cigarettes went one way, and the pipe tobacco and the pipes went a different, or, you know, were sold through different vehicles. Yeah, it, it, it's a strange situation, really, I suppose. But when I when I worked there, Dunhill King Size and Dunhill International cigarettes we sold. Dunhill Pipes and Dunhill Tobacco, we had nothing to do with at all. Um, what we did get was very substantial discounts on Dunhill products. Uh -oh. So I was able, to, <laughs> I was able to my father a Dunhill pipe, uh, and my then wife and I both uh, sported um, Dunhill lighters. <laughs> so let's talk about your own personal pipe smoking. When did when did you first smoke a pipe? Uh, well, I first smoked when I when I joined Rothmans. Um, 
I'd, I'd, I'd enjoyed a cigarette, usually with a drink. I wasn't an habitual smoker. Uh, but when I got to Rothmans, uh, Carreras Rothmans, um, basically, they were free. Yeah. Um, I mean, we got an allowance of uh, everybody who worked in the sales department got an allowance of 1,800 cigarettes a month. Um, wow. Because you were supposed to, you know, if you, if you were training a salesman, the first thing you did on going into a call was offer cigarettes mm -hmm. to people. So you all, whether you're a smoker or not, and another guy who joined the same day as I, I did, wasn't a smoker and never smoked. But he always, while he worked for Rothmans, he always carried cigarettes to offer to offer to people. Um, so the sales force used to get uh, told what their 1800, 1800 cigarettes would be. They got them delivered to the home address, and it depended what the drive brands were that month okay. as to what as they received. When you're a bit higher up in the food chain, as, as I was in national accounts, I think I had to have a thousand cigarettes, um, but the other 800 I could have in equivalents, as it were. And, and at that point, I started uh, trialing all the, uh, the pipe tobaccos. So Erin uh, Moore, Punchbowl, Craven Mixture, certainly all three of those I tried. And that's what started me on a pipe, really. Did you... In did they help you out with a Dunhill pipe to get started, or...? No, no. You had to buy your pipe. Um, <laughs> and it was, uh, as I say, Dunhill, although I got a substantial discount, and I wanted to buy my father one for Christmas, I, I never quite um, stretched to buying myself one. Funnily enough, my father, my father who's, who passed away three or four years ago, is uh, not, a, not a particularly sentimental man, and when he gave up smoking in his 70s, because he had chest trouble, he just threw his Dunhill pipe away. <laughs> wow! Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah. But, but... I was at my mother's. She is still alive. She's ninety-nine. Um, I was at my mother's apartment a week or two ago, and uh, I said, "Mum, there's no chance that Dad held on to the pipe, is he? Is there? Is it in the back of a drawer somewhere?" I said, "Because really, they're quite valuable now." She said, "No, no, no. He threw. He definitely threw the, all his pipe stuff away when he stopped smoking." That was a. <laughs> I wasn't smoking either. I'd given the pipe up, and I only got back into it relatively recently, when I discovered that um, you could you could buy pipes with filters. So uh, I started when, once the the nine mil filter pipes. Uh, well, once I became aware of them, I then started smoking a pipe again. So for thirty years or so, I I, I didn't touch tobacco at all, but I'd always enjoyed a pipe. Um, found it very relaxing. I like the ritual of lighting up. I like a lot of the history of it, like, as we've just been talking about, the pipe tobacco business and the, the, the trade in, in tobacco across the Atlantic between Liverpool and the, the, port, the ports, I guess the southern ports on the east coast of the states like yeah. Charleston and Savannah and, and, and places like that, where the tobacco went through, or Richmond maybe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk more, uh, more, uh, more history with uh, Ken. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste. And whether you know it or not, you've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe, just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes, and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this, and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm. Smoking pipes in faithful service of the hobby. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with Ken Johnson of the uh, of the United Kingdom and England and uh, and all the uh, and, and all the Commonwealth. Um, you, you haven't met the Queen, have you? And now I was at a dinner once with her sister, but that's as close as I okay. ever got. 
<laughs> I always ask. Someday, somewhere down the road, I'm gonna. Anyway, um, so going back to your uh, your sales job with yeah. Carreras Rothmans is kind of similar to jobs that I've had in the past, where you you know you go in and you make these. You're you're talking to a national chain about multiple stores and was and positioning of the and it was primarily cigarettes that you were working with and concerned with with those chains correct yeah yeah cigarettes was the big business in fact we i mean, i was thinking about this while i was in between our previous conversation and this one um and i don't think brian we even got a target for tobacco that was that was how yeah. unimportant it was compared to our target was about cigarettes. It was about Rothmans King Size, which was the big brand for Rothmans, Carreras Rothmans, Dunhill International, Dunhill, um, Samaritz, uh, Piccadilly, um, and Peter Stuyvesant. Which, although it was an uh, that was an American brand, we sold it in the UK for some reason. It only sold in the UK because it didn't sell in the US. Yeah. <laughs> what were the other? What was your primary competition? What were your your primary competitive brands? Well, in the uh, do you know the history of Imperial Tobacco? Very little. Right. Well, the Imperial Tobacco Company was formed in the early 1900s to protect the UK industry from the American Tobacco Company, which had <laughs> declared its aim of taking over the UK tobacco trade. Um, and the English companies, not just English, English and Scottish companies, to resist this, amalgamated under the under the banner of the Imperial Tobacco Company. So uh, the two big, the two biggest components of, the, of Imperial Tobacco were Players of Nottingham, John Players of Nottingham, and um, Wills of Bristol. And along the way, they they they, they sort of acquired. At that time, and in the sort of decade after, decades after, they acquired a lot of other small regional companies, okay. um, like Bells of Glasgow, who were the original makers of Three Nuns, um, like Ogden's, who made St. Bruno and St. Julian, like, uh, well, there was a company called Godfrey, Godfrey Phillips became part of Imperial Tobacco, and that was the tobacco that my father smoked, Godfrey Phillips Grand Cut, which you can't get anymore. So when I was came into the tobacco trade in the in the 70s um, it was it was something like oof, something like 50% imperial tobacco 30% uh, Gallagher's and then the rest was um, Carreras Rothmans and some other very small company Wow um, will uh, the big the big pipe tobacco brands uh, the biggest were St. Bruno, which was a an imperial tobacco brand at that time. Um, Condor, yeah. which was the uh, Gallagher's brand. And Erimor, uh, which was the, the Carreras Rothman brand. So and the only time I ever set up promotions on um, on pipe tobacco brands for Rothmans were, 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 were on Erimor. The other brands didn't have a wide enough uh, what we call distribution. They weren't stocked in enough places. Uh, to merit um, to merit much in the way of, of promotion and advertising. When so, I joined, cigar um, advertising cigarettes on television had been banned, but I, I think from I've got a memory that you could still advertise cigars and pipe tobacco. But again, the pipe tobacco market was so small by comparison that there was very little advertising on on TV of pipe tobaccos. Most of it tended to be magazine. But for many of my, uh, for many of the younger listeners, you would sell some of your one or maybe one or two of your key pipe tobacco brands to a to a market or a, a grocery store, and on the on the display of tobacco with cigarettes, there would be pipe tobacco right there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and they, they, they did advertise Erinmore quite well because it, it was a big brand in pipe tobacco terms. Um, we even had, uh, which uh, we used at um, county shows and that sort of thing, state fairs you'd call them, I guess. Uh, we had a hot air balloon in the shape of a pipe. 
in the Aaron, <laughs> in the Aaron covers, which is quite a novelty. In fact, uh, I don't know. I'm, I don't fly myself, but there's, each aircraft has an identifier, doesn't it? Yeah. A number and uh, some letters. Oh, sorry, a, a letter and some numbers. The Aaron Moore pipe, uh, the Aaron Moore pipe inflatable hot air balloon was G pipe. That was its sign. <laughs> I'd like, I wonder if that's still around. Because, <laughs> but you can there are still you can still see pictures of it on the net. Wow, I checked it up yesterday. So, were you as as a as a national accounts person? Did you get involved maybe with manufacturing and and advise and consult on what the market wanted? And I and I realize most of this is going to be cigarette related, but. Uh, not so much. I mean, the, that was done by the marketing department. So sales and marketing were two separate functions. And generally, we only saw the marketeers when they came to present new brands to us. Um, I did go over to Belfast to see the Murray's um, factory as part of my induction, uh, which was fascinating. All right. Um, ta tell us all about it. Because <laughs> well, I don't know anybody who's ever been in there, so now you're it. <laughs> well, it, it was like... Um, in a good way, stepping back into the 19th century, because I mean, I'd been to Basildon, uh, which was a new town on the edge, on the outskirts of London, a big modern factory churning out millions and millions of sticks, as we call cigarettes yeah. in the industry, millions and millions of sticks a day, uh, and then with with huge machines that didn't really need many people to tend to look after them. Uh, and then you you go into a tobacco factory in in the heart of Belfast, in the heart of the Protestant area of Belfast, actually, because uh, Belfast was very much a divided city in those days along religious ground. Um, and there was uh, a nice old building which I think has also been converted into offices. Although I stand to be corrected on that, but that was like stepping back into the 19th century. Everything was done by people. Uh, and very little of the process was automated, certainly by today's standards. So was it one of those factories where you'd walk in and the and there'd just be tobacco in different spots and different parts and processes? Yeah. And uh, did they store the tobacco there waiting for use as well? Yeah, uh, they did. Um, and generally speaking, I think you know the, the, the tobacco manufacturers, I think... Certainly Murray's, and I'll speak to you later maybe about another visit I made a couple of weeks ago to a, a tobacco manufacturer. Um, they'd like to have a lot of stock, mm -hmm. um, probably more than the accountants would like them to have. <laughs> but but they, like, uh, they, like, they like their tobaccos to, to age a bit, and they, they like to have plenty on hand. But yes, basically hoppers of, of, of tobacco and, and presses and cutters and everything pretty much hand-operated. Um, and I'm guessing because of the long term, I mean, there seemed to be, because even in the, nine, the late 1970s, um, tobacco was, pipe tobacco was, was not selling in the quantities that it had, had done 50 years before or 100 years before. Um, and th there seemed to be quite a lot of space, really. There was, there was they certainly weren't pushed for, um, pushed for space. And I'm guessing, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing that's why... Rothman's International moved the Dunhill production to Murray's in the early 80s because basically Murray's had the space to handle it and whatever space they were devoting to tobacco production in central London well that's a costly sort of rent isn't it yeah so the so the economies of scale take effect and then you get consolidating of product into you know, based off of areas and where it's available and I would imagine cigarettes were much more important to sell in London. Well, it's just what you'd pay for a square footage in London. If you were making tobacco, I mean, just guessing, I mean, if you were making tobacco on a site where the rent was, I don't know, just plucking figures out of the air, £50 per square foot per year. In Belfast, it would probably be £5 per square foot yeah. per year. They could devote that space to something more profitable. Talking about cigarettes in London, can we just, just for fun, um, when you were selling the the premium Dunhill, I guess Dunhill cigarettes would have been the most expensive at, at the time. 
How much was a pack of a pack of twenty or twenty five cigarettes back when you were selling them? In the seventies, late seventies, and most of this was tax, of course. Yeah. Uh, most price was tax. Um, about seventy five pence. And now I believe in London they're about eleven or twelve pounds per pack. I understand, I understand so. I mean, you, I don't look. For, I don't look at the price of cigarettes. In fact, you can't see them anymore because they're hidden away, out of sight. Display is forbidden now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no longer are they. Um, do you have brand designs anymore either? There's just a a simple name. It would say, I guess, 20 Rothmans king size, and then one of those horrible pictures that they insist that the uh, the manufacturers put on their cigarettes and on their pipe tobaccos now. When you were when you were selling, did you also, or when maybe during your initiation, did they take you into the tobacconist trade to uh, to see the product? Uh. Yes, yeah. I mean, we, we we visited all the sort of different places that the tobaccos were sold, supermarket chains, uh, CTNs, as I said, com confectioner, tobacconist, newsagents. They were a big outlet. Uh, Off-license uh, chains, which sold um, mainly uh, alcohol, but would also sell snacks and drinks and things that you'd associate with alcohol. Uh, and then the pubs, of course. Um, which were, I mean, at that time, I'm going from memory again, I think there were probably about 20,000 pubs then in the UK. Wow. I stand to be corrected on that. But that was an important um, outlet because people obviously often associate a smoke with a drink. Um, but what you didn't get in the pubs, of course, was the huge range of choice because they didn't have um, the... Uh, the space basically so most pubs would stock maybe six or eight brands of cigarettes and so once you were in that was great because you didn't have that as much competition but getting them in getting your brand into the pubs was was not easy what it was it common for somebody going to a pub maybe to go in there get a pint and then get maybe a a smaller pack of cigarettes and then that was part of their evening uh not really no i mean by when i was there Twenties of cigarettes had become pretty much the standard pack. Tens were a very minor part of the market. And the old fives, um, which I can remember my father buying five cigarettes in the 1950s, they, they pretty much disappeared. The other big area, of course, was vending, was vending machines, yeah. which are now elite, of course, because you can't prevent underage purchases. But uh, in those days... The big vending operators were um, were a substantial part of the market. Any uh, any pipe tobacco sold through these pubs or through the vending? Yeah. They probably hold maybe one or two brands for the regulars, the people who you know they the brands they knew they could sell because they knew the guys had come in and asked for it. So they'd have they'd have the key brands available if you ran out of your if you ran out of your regular or. Yeah, I mean, I mean, tobacco, pipe tobacco brands were more regional, as I remember them, than cigarettes. Mm. So you'd get you'd get a, a brand like Three Nuns that would be historically strong in the in Scotland in the Glasgow because it had originally been produced in Glasgow, and maybe down in the southwest, for instance, uh, another brand entirely might be the brand leader. Again, around Liverpool, you know, a lot of people smoked some Bruno because it was made in Liverpool. So there was a regionality to the to the UK tobacco pipe tobacco market. So you couldn't, even though some Bruno, uh, Condor, Erinmore were big brands, certainly in pubs you wouldn't necessarily expect to find, automatically expect to find them in there. If you went into a tobacconist you'd always expect to find those brands. Not necessarily in a pub where they'd only hold two or three brands, maybe. And this is, you know, for a lot of, uh, again, even for me as a, you know, early 50s person in in the U.S., um, our brands have always, as long as I can remember, have been national brands. 
whatever, you know, whatever's produced is produced and sold across the country. But for an island of, for the island of England, where it's in a couple hundred miles north to south, I find it fascinating that there's so many regionals. Yeah. Well, it's, big, it's a bit bigger than that, Brian. I mean, John O'Groves to Lund's Ends about 850 miles. Wow. Tip of Scotland, tip of Cornwall. It's a bit bigger than that. And don't get me wrong, as I say, if you went into a tobacconist or a supermarket that had a big tobacco counter, um, you would expect to find all the mm -hmm. national brands yeah. there. But where distribution was restricted, like in pubs, where they'd only you know, hold maybe two or three tobaccos, it would be the tobaccos that not necessarily were the national brands, but the brands that were strongest in that area. Wow. Or indeed, the brands that the guy knew his regulars wanted. So he kept them in stock. And before you said you also recently visited a, another tobacco factory. Well, that's right. Um, and this was pure, purely chance. My One of my daughters lives in the Lake District on Windermere, which is the biggest lake uh, in England. Tiny by um, American standards, but the biggest lake in England. Uh, but nearby is a, uh, a town called Kendall. Which is the uh, the hometown of Samuel Goweth and Goweth Hogarth, who used to be in independent of each other, but now are combined. So uh, I'd promised uh, one of the guys on um, Gentlemen's Pipe Smoking Club that next time I was over there, I'd just take a picture of the of the <laughs> the, the factory and and and, and uh, put it up there for him. Um, but when I got there. Uh, it was uh, a fairly modern industrial unit from the outside, but there was no signage <laughs> at all. So I popped my head through the door, and, and one of the guys was one of the factory guys was walking past. And I said, "Excuse me," I said, "I've just come to take a picture of the factory, but I, am I in the wrong place? I can't find any signs anywhere that says this is Gareth Hogarth." Um, and he said, "Well, uh, that's really for more for security reasons." Because if it was, you know, widely known that there was a lot of tobacco here, it might, uh, it might invite theft. He said, "But hold on, I'll go and get somebody to talk to you about it." Anyway, the somebody was um, Chris Gower, the managing director, oh, who wow. very kindly gave me half an hour of his time to show me around the place inside. I'd only, I'd only um, wanted to take a photograph from the outside. But he, he gave me a half an hour on, on the factory and on his plans for the future and the opportunities and, and maybe some of the downsides, the Brexit um, and, of course, coronavirus had uh, visited on them. It was fascinating, totally unexpected and quite delightful half an hour. Did you see the old machinery there? Because I, I understand some of it's 300 years old. Well, they started in 1792, so it can't be 300. But it, it, there is one particular piece, I think, which has been there since the beginning. So somebody said that it was the oldest piece of industrial machinery still in regular use in the United Kingdom. Um, but the plan is, I understand, as part of the modernization process. The old Samuel Goweth factory in the center of Kendall has been sold to the printers next door who needed space in which to into which to expand. The old Gareth Hogarth factory they still own, but they're going to turn that into a visitor centre, exhibition centre, museum sort of place. Um, part, part of the marketing really for the for the for the company. And I think the, the very oldest of the machinery is going to be restored and installed there as a okay, almost as a museum piece, and that's part of Chris's plans to just expand production by replacing some of the not all of them by any means, but some of these very old machines. And they are still and one of the world's leaders in because it was it was just like Murray's was getting on well forty years ago over forty years ago, just like that. Wow, most. What we call them um, handomatic machines. <laughs> no, but they were so they were more modern than having a water wheel running out the window and stuck in the river to power the machines. Yeah, I think one of the old sites did have was based at a mill. 
Um, but no, it was all mains electricity powering powering the site. But still, you know, very much um, old style production, if you if, if you get what I mean. And they're and they're still one of the world's leading producers in uh, nasal snuff. Yeah, I don't imagine there are many people in nasal snuff, but yeah, they still do that. I mean, um, grinding the tobacco out and drying it and adding bits and pieces to it to to make snuff, um, which of course is useful to people that have a nicotine habit, but work in jobs where lighting up a cigarette would be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like chewing tobacco as well. It's it's one way of getting your nicotine fix without endangering anybody. I mean, miners used to like snuff a lot. Apparently, we couldn't have a naked light underground. Or the or the old Escudo rope tobaccos, where they'd cut a piece and chew it, and then later on that night, cut a piece and put it in their pipe. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, there's even somebody suggests that they chew it, keep it, dry it, and then smoke it. I'm not sure. That works. Mm, mm. Um, On that note, we will finish this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? I am. What is your favorite pipe? Um, A bent apple briar. And what is your favorite tobacco? Uh, Old Dublin by Peterson's. And you're an Englishman, so keep this in mind. What is your favorite drink? An expensive French claret. <laughs> well, mind, mind you, you shouldn't automatically go for the most expensive, but as far as clarets are concerned, generally you get what you pay for. When it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? A book. And and then finally, do you have a uh, pipe smoking related memory that we haven't talked about, or maybe a maybe a work related memory that we haven't talked about that you want to share? Um, I made a few notes here, and I think we've covered most of them. We've managed to cram quite a lot into twenty minutes or so. Yeah. Oh, there was there was something I forgot to mention actually. Um, when I was talking about um, us not having anything to do with Dunhill tobaccos when I was at Rothmans, there was a tobacco we smoked, uh, we sold, called Mick McQuaid. Um, and that was originally produced by a company called Carol's in Dundalk in Ireland. And the reason we had it on our price list was that Carol's didn't have a UK sales force and Carol's were at least part owned by Rothmans International. So we had it on the price list. And I'd just say it's the only tobacco I've smoked that I would guarantee to know anywhere on a blind test. Mick McQuaid, <laughs> Mick McQuaid Flake. It had an absolutely unique smokiness to it that I've not found in any other tobacco. Wow. Now you're going to have a whole bunch of people searching the searching the Internet for old cans of Mick McQuaid because, I mean, that goes back. I, I think it's made in Germany now, but yes, it is. Um, there's a quite a there's a, there's a st- have you've got time. There's a bit of a story attached to Mick McQuaid, actually. Yeah, please. Well, uh, in the 19th century, um, there was a, a form of reading very popular in Ireland called story papers, uh, which weren't weren't books, um, but were they weren't comics. They were like adult stories, but relatively short stories. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the one of the, uh, the popular, most popular of these series, centered around a character called Mick McQuaid, who was a bit of a lad, bit of a chancer, a bit of a you know, a bit light on his feet, as they say, <laughs> often got into trouble with author- with authority, but because he was quick-witted, usually got out of the trouble and and, and triumphed. And he was such a well-known character in Ireland that Mick, uh, that Carol's named uh, tobacco after him. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now I just want to—I I want an old tin just for the decoration because it, it'd be fun to just well, have it to look at. Well, you can still buy the the product. I don't—I um, don't know if you can still get the plug, but I think you can still get the flake and the ready rubbed. Yeah, I think they're still produced, but it's got to be completely different than what it was made back then. And yeah, I'm. 
I don't want to depress people, but I think sometimes the tobacco might have been better back then. Well, it, it was certainly different. I mean, even when the, the tobacco stayed with the same manufacturer, it's going to be different yeah. because climate change, soils change, plants evolve and mutate. It's, it's never going to be identical. Ken, I'd like to I'd like to offer you a return to the show if you think of more stories and stuff like that. Well, you know, I'd love to have you back, but I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you, Brian, for the invitation. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And we'll be back in just a minute. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, We've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell and Deal. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at C&D, as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell & Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. I really enjoyed talking to Ken. I mean, just you know, obviously a, a look into a time back <laughs> that uh, we will never have again when there was uh, pipe tobacco for sale in pubs and possibly vending machines. And anyway, just great, great stories. Really enjoyed talking to him. Hopefully we'll get more stories. Hopefully. All right, for music, and I cannot find the uh, wonderful listener who recommended this album to me, but it's the album is called Stay Awake, and it's various interpretations of music from vintage Disney films. And the CD was done in 1988, so I was working at Disneyland when this was done. Uh, in particular, no pipe-smoking-related stuff in this, but... This song in particular caught me off guard, and it's from Tom Waits, and it's Tom doing uh, Hi-Ho the Dwarfs marching song.
Well, what'd you think? Um, so my first impression was, you know, of course, Tom Waits is not uh, mainstream, and that's a bit of an acquired taste there, but the rest of the album's got some fun stuff on it that I may play in the future, but that one in particular, that's unique, and I'm just imagining somewhere somebody at Disney had to approve that for copyright. Alert one, alert one, incoming emergency and just a quick mailbag. Remember, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, B-R-I-A-N at pipesmagazine.com. Uh, Travel-related stuff, brian.levine at mei-travel.com, or you can post stuff on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on pipesmagazine.com. Uh, Mick wrote in, uh, nice interview with John, good stories, and love the music by Ray LaMontagne. Yeah, cool guitar. Uh, you might appreciate Kebmo, a song called Keep It Simple. Clean blues, keep up the good work, Brian Mick. Will do, and I and I do like Kebmo, especially his uh, version of America the Beautiful. Uh, Dino also wrote in, uh, yes, John must return for part two of this conversation. It was fun to soak up his enthusiasm for pipes and life in general. Yes, Ray LaMontagne's song was outstanding, and the guitar licks quite tasty. And yes, a well-made hat is a joy to behold. And yes, thanks for another always entertaining show, Dino. You are welcome, Dino. And uh, re and uh, also regarding hats, I still have a few of the Pipes Magazine radio show hats. Those are a $30 donation that includes uh, shipping in the uh, United States. If you're outside the U.S., reach out to me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Uh, payment by PayPal or Venmo in uh Big chunk of that, you know, everything but the postage is going towards the JDRF. We've already raised, I think, about $250, $300 off of that. So thank you very much. Um, if you have paid for your hats already and have not received them, reach out to me and let me know. And in just a moment, well, we're going to get... Uh, we're going to get uh, soap, you know, uh, soppy and uh, heartwarming here with a... Uh, going to end the show with a special message. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. Today is uh, Tuesday, July 14th, and tomorrow is Wednesday, July 15th, and is also my 30th wedding anniversary. So I want to take this time to say thank you to my wife for, uh, you know, for being my life partner. Thank you for uh, saving me at times from myself. Thank you for being a guide and sometimes just coming along for the ride. Wouldn't have it any other way. For uh, you uh, young folks that aren't married yet or that are just married, just remember that you know life has its ups and downs and just stick together through it. And sometimes you are going to be in the driver's seat. Sometimes you just need to sit in the back and let the other one drive. And that, uh, boy, if I had learned that a long time ago, it might have saved us a few, <laughs> few knockdown drag-out fights. But I wouldn't have it any other way. My wife is my... Uh, uh, she's my comfort and my guide at times and you know without her I wouldn't be where I am and considering we've been married for 30 years and sometimes I act like I'm 12 or 14 you know she's put up with a lot and uh, for us guys you know sometimes putting my pipe in my mouth and smoking it has saved me from saying some stupid stuff or doing some stupid things so uh, you know, I'm looking forward to another 30 years together, although my uh, tobacco stash will only last another 25 years or 20 years. So 
Uh, we'll see how that goes. But anyway, happy anniversary to my wonderful, lovely wife. Um, with that, I want to say thank you to uh, Ken for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. And instead of our normal Happy Trails music, well, you're going to get a song that is special to the both of us. We played it at our wedding. Uh, you guys listen to it? Yeah? Reach out to me. Let me, know if you, let me know if you recognize the band and the name of the song. So until next time, 